Well, good morning. You may open your Bible to the book of Haggai, which if you get to the, go to the left in the New Testament and enter into the New Testament in just a couple books to the left is where you'll find it. As we continue our series through the book of Haggai, taking a few weeks this summer to uh, provide an interlude to our study through the Gospel of Matthew, We've looked the past couple weeks as we observed both the history and the circumstances leading up to Israel, or specifically the southern kingdom. Israel had split into two kingdoms, into the southern kingdom of Judah and their exile by the Babylonians following roughly 100 years after their sister kingdom of Israel to the north. Whereas the northern kingdom had been completely and fully assimilated into the other nations, God preserved a remnant from Judah, and we looked a couple weeks ago at that return of the remnant and fulfillment of the prophecy that had been given that after 70 years in exile, they would return. And 70 years later, God, faithful to his word, brought them back in most unusual fashion, using a pagan Gentile emperor named Cyrus, who is the emperor or the king of Persia. And perhaps even more remarkable is that Cyrus was named specifically as the one who would instigate this return by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before that even took place. And so we come to a time in Israel's history where having been through the exile, having returned, as you would expect, great jubilation and excitement over God fulfilling his promises. And that certainly was there at the beginning, but as we looked at, again, over the past couple weeks, that quickly stalled, it quickly gave way to the fear of the surrounding nations and ultimately into grievous sin as they presumed upon God, as they took the very resources that God had sent and provided for them when they returned and began using it to make their own homes more comfortable, more enjoyable while ignoring the work on the temple. And it was at the end of that rebuke that we concluded last week in chapter 1. And before we get into that, I wanted to ask you a question. Have you ever tried to build something without following directions? You know, I like puzzles, so I like the challenge that accompanies trying to figure it out when you first get something. But more often than not, or maybe not more often than not, but plenty of times, I've reached the end, particularly with IKEA furniture, and wonder what all these extra parts were and why it didn't fit together quite right. Or perhaps you've been baking or cooking and you weren't paying attention to the recipe and left out an important ingredient only to realize at the end that what you've got is good for nothing other than the trash, so you have to toss it out. Well, do you realize that Scripture contains patterns and instructions for obedience? Not just simply this command and not just simply the statement that you have to obey. It actually provides a means by which we obey. And that to fail to follow that pattern, to fail to follow those instructions and to do it the right way is tantamount to having to toss it out. It becomes worthless. Or obedience is not even obedience. Certainly much worse than having to throw out some food or having to redo the assembly of some furniture, we fail to please the Lord. The very thing we set out to do, we fail to do because we did not follow his instructions. 
Perhaps one of the most prominent examples we have in the Old Testament is uh, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who upon the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, they're still in the wilderness, they set up the tabernacle, they got excited about worshiping God, but they didn't follow his instructions. And so scripture records, and we don't know exactly what this looked like, but rather than offering the incense and coming in correctly, as God said, he was to be worshiped, they said, we'll do it our way. In their excitement, their exuberance, their right desire to worship God, they did not follow the pattern and the instruction, and they were struck dead. Well, this morning we're going to observe from the, the example of the returned remnant of Israel three ingredients for obedience that pleases the Lord so that we might live lives that bring glory to God. And the ingredients we'll be looking at this morning to create and to cultivate God-honoring obedience to establish that pattern is going to be summed up under the three words listening, fearing, and doing. So if you haven't already turned there, you can... Turn to Haggai 1 and read along with me as I read just verses 12 through 15 this morning. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the peoples obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. As the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Pray with me. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, as we observe the obedience of this returned remnant, may it serve as a pattern and an example for us that we might faithfully obey you, being doers of your word. Help us with that this morning. Help us to rightly interpret, to understand, and to apply your word. In your name, amen. Well, as we've mentioned previously, Haggai has a somewhat unique privilege of observing the people respond positively to the message he was given to proclaim. Throughout Israel's history, she more often than not rejected and quite frequently persecuted the prophets and the messengers whom the Lord sent, at times even putting those prophets to death, sometimes in horrific fashion. You see, if there's one thing people do not like, it is for their sins to be exposed, right? There's a knee-jerk defensive reaction to accusations of sin. And the more grievous the sin, or the more grievous the perhaps consequence of the sin, the more lengths a person will go to in order to avoid or suppress its exposure. We don't like to be told we're wrong. That's universally true. And yet, the sad reality is that the one hiding their sin, us at times, are merely prolonging and intensifying the judgment for that sin or the consequence or the punishment for that sin. I mean, God's made it clear that there will come a day when everything will be exposed and all acts done on this earth will be exposed. That's why as we've studied through Matthew and particularly the Sermon on the Mount, our greatest need is found in those beatitudes where it's to mourn over sin, to cultivate that spirit of poverty, 
that manifests itself in humility and a continual reliance upon the mercy and the grace of God and the recognition that I am a sinner and I need to continually and regularly confess that sin and ask and seek that forgiveness. And it's a continual reliance upon the mercy and the grace of God that then is accompanied by the empowering of a spirit as we seek to obey, as we repent over sin and then prayerfully follow the instructions laid out for us in Scripture. Well, this morning we're going to observe as the returned remnant of post-exilic Judah as they respond in obedience to the words of Haggai the prophet. Haggai, as it says number, a number of times, came with a message from the Lord. And he delivered that message. He didn't come with his own fanciful ideas. He didn't come with a feel-good message. He came with what the Lord had instructed him to deliver. And that itself is an important reminder for us. We don't need to rely upon our own creativity, our own power of intellect, or our own prowess in speaking and convincing to stir up obedience. As we'll observe this morning, the Spirit will work through His Word. We sang that this morning in one of our songs. And the same is true in our lives, whether studying for ourselves or teaching to others. We don't need to come up with a new or different message. We don't need to alter the message. We don't need to soften the message. We don't need to adjust the message. We simply need to learn it rightly and to proclaim God's Word. As we've noted so many times in our studies, we prefer to see ourselves as the hero of the story, don't we? As we look at the message of Haggai and his coming, you know, I read it, and my natural inclination is to find myself standing right behind Haggai, giving him a pat on the back, saying, boy." The reality is, for most of us, many of us, perhaps all of us, that we are better situated by taking those glasses off of hero glasses and instead sitting in the audience of Israel, listening to what Haggai is saying. Every time we sin, we presume upon God's grace. How carelessly we utilize the gifts he has given to us, using them for our own glory, for our own building up for our own desires instead of the glory of God, stealing from him as it were. We make our chief end the glory of ourselves, not the glory of God, and find ourselves in continual need of repentance, forgiveness on a recurring basis. And yes, we should certainly strive to imitate the example of Haggai or of Paul or of the saints who have gone before in so much as they imitate Christ. But we need to rightly recognize how far we have to go in the battle against sin and the process of sanctification and avoid that spiritual hubris, assuming that I know the answers, that here I am, I'm in the position of Haggai ready to correct everyone else's faults. So as we observe this morning, the response of this rebellious but now repentant remnant, I want us to have eyes to once again see and recognize and strive to recognize our own spiritual poverty. That is, our own spiritual neediness. Our need to rightly respond to sin in our lives with God-honoring obedience. As Paul says to the Corinthians, when describing the example of the wilderness generation, he said in 1 Corinthians 10.6, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. A couple of verses later, as he elaborates further upon the example set before us and why we even look at the Old Testament, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 12, now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 
Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, or so that he does not fall. So as we turn this morning, let us approach our observation of this example with humility so that we don't find ourselves in a position where we fall. Well, verse 12 provides the first of those two ingredients for obedience, or first of the three. Two of them are found in verse 12. And the first is really an explanation of the term we have for obedience that we see in the first half of the verse. And this is listening. Our English translations note that from the top to the bottom, the leaders of the, from the leaders to the people, there was a response. And that response is described as one of obedience. And as we consider this response, it's helpful to understand that the Hebrew term frequently translated as obedience is the word or the phrase to listen. They listened to the word of the Lord. But we translate it as obey, and correctly, it's rightly translated as obey, because we recognize that the use here doesn't mean they simply heard the message of Haggai, that it went in one ear and out the other. It means much more than that. Rather, they internalized it and had an effect upon their belief and their behavior. And we still use the term listen in that idiomatic way today, don't we? If you ask someone to follow instructions, or if you want to ask a child if they've obeyed, you might say, did you listen to what I said? Did you hear me? And we're not asking, did you actually hear the words? Maybe sometimes. But what we really mean is, did you do what those words communicated? We still use it the exact same way. If there's anything we need to learn how to do, it is to become better listeners of God's word. Not to simply hear it like we do background music in a restaurant or a shopping mall, where it's simply nice and it adds ambiance, but to listen to it in such a way that it impacts our thinking and our behavior. We must learn to become listeners of God's word, to listen to him carefully, thoughtfully, methodically. James pleads with us in James 1.19 where he says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And when, we, when you hear teaching on that passage, you often hear it focused upon the danger of the tongue, the danger of speaking, and the danger of words. And that is a good place to focus because there is a lot of danger from the tongue. James goes into more examples of that. And it's right to focus on that. But it is not right to focus on that to the exclusion of the instruction to hear and being slow to hear. We can't ignore that command because it's not simply that we cease speaking or better guard your words. No, there's something else you're to be doing. And that's to direct that effort and that energy toward listening. It's an integral part of obedience. It's a necessary component, component and ingredient of obedience. And this type of hearing and listening is tied to the concept of meditation in scriptures. In describing the blessed man in Psalm 1, we read that he meditates day and night upon the law of the Lord. To meditate upon God's words is to think carefully about what has been said. To ask how my life measures up to what is implied and instructed. To ask how my view of God compares to what he teaches about himself. For the psalmist, the words of God are his delight. They bear the fruit of righteousness that distinguishes from the wicked, the sinner, and the disobedient. 
So we recognize that listening is important. Listening to God's word actively is important. But how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we cultivate that? How do we practice this ingredient? Well, it begins first and foremost with an attitude and the question of what does God's word say? And the attitude and desire to submit to what it has to say. It does not go to Scripture to confirm one's own opinion, but rather to understand the mind of God and a desire to submit to what He says. To place oneself under the authority of God and His Word, not above it. Not to use Scripture as a sledgehammer to win an argument, but to use it to beat out the sin of your own life. And with that attitude in place, it then requires diligent study. For many of you, you're long past the school age years, and yet you are to be diligently studying week in and week out the Word of God. It involves thinking carefully upon it, making it a habit of asking questions of the text, of being an active listener. I mean, one of the ways to do that is just to cultivate the habit of asking questions, questions like the who, what, where, when, whys, and hows. And this teaches us, what it does is it helps to train our minds to engage actively with Scripture. To not just passively take in information. I mean, how many times have you read a psalm or read anything, and as soon as you finished it, you're like, now what did I just read? Or you've just zoned out. That is not how we are to approach Scripture. And so we have to be diligent about this. It does not come easy. Doesn't no matter how long you've done it, how many languages you've studied, what you've done, it doesn't come easy. It takes effort each and every time to engage it, to engage your mind. We love to check out. We love to want to rest our minds. But when you study Scripture to learn from God's Word, it involves actively engaging. It takes time. It takes patience. It does not rush through the text to get it done as quickly as possible. It's one of the reasons we move a bit more slowly through passages of Scripture here in our studies at Canton Bible. So I've spent the past year or more studying Matthew to be only a third of the way through. It's we want to take the time to listen and to engage, to ask questions. Listening then is the first ingredient we observe here for obedience. And it's through listening that we see and begin to recognize sin. As we study God's word, our sin God's righteousness, His holiness, His standard becomes more and more evident in our, to our lives. And as a result, we're going to see sin. And that's precisely what's taken place with these Israelites. They have listened. They have internalized what Haggai said. They have recognized their sin. They've recognized how they have presumed upon God, how they have failed to obey in rebuilding the temple. They have seen their great sin of stealing from God to make themselves more comfortable. They've listened and it's now clicked. That the economic woes they've been experiencing are disciplines for their disobedience. And so note in the second half of verse 12 how we find the second ingredient for obedience. Notice before they begin the work, before they run off to action, what do they do? It says they fear the Lord. We read at the end of verse 12 that the people fear the Lord. Depending upon your English translation, it may say either showed reverence or feared. Showing reverence is more a description of what takes place because of the fear of the Lord. 
The actual description here is fear. More specifically, they feared before the presence or the face of the Lord. So now I need to ask a good complicated question, which is what is the fear of the Lord? What does it mean? We like quick, simple answers. And unfortunately, this is not a quick and simple answer. It's not even one we'll exhaustively cover this morning. In fact, the short answer is it depends upon context. The longer answer is that the fear of the Lord is it's a multifaceted concept. It's multidimensional, has different elements that may be emphasized differently at different times and in different circumstances. Like the term listen, the term fear can be used idiomatically to describe a variety of emotions and responses. It can be a description of terror, or it might describe feelings of awe and wonder, or it can be used to describe the worship that results from that awe and wonder. To just begin to illustrate what I mean when I say it's multifaceted, think about a common English concept of water. You, water's a pretty simple concept, right? I mean, it's water. We drink it every day, we need it, it composes, I think it's over 70% of the body. So water should be simple to define, right? And yet I could be describing refreshing cool springs of water. But then there's ocean water that is anything but refreshing, to drink at least, it cannot be drunk. There are calm, peaceful streams, there's raging rivers of water. Water can change states from liquid to frozen to gaseous. The significance of water and what I mean by water depends entirely upon the context that is used and how it's described. Whether it's something that is refreshing or whether it's something that drowns someone whether it's used to help build and construct or whether it's water that destroys. All of it depends upon context. How is it being used? What is it being used to say and to imply? A theologian named Bill Barrick notes that many Christians find it difficult to describe what it means to fear God. Does it mean to be afraid? Does it mean to have a reverential awe? Or to mortify flesh or crucify self? The more one reads commentaries, theologies, and devotionals, the more one finds that few have a clear concept of what the fear of the Lord involves. I think often that's because we try to overly simplify the concept. And yet as multifaceted, as many pieces as there are to it, it is still very important that we not throw up our hands and say we can't really understand it. It is important that we understand it. Why? Because Job 28.28 and Proverbs 1.7 both iterate the same truth. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And throughout Proverbs, throughout Job, wisdom is tantamount to salvation and knowing God. And so that fear of the Lord is absolutely crucial and essential. Well, this morning, just to help us in our understanding of what the fear of the Lord is a little bit. We're not going to arrive. I simply want to note several different effects that come from the fear of the Lord. Well, first, and this isn't any surprise, when you hear the word fear, what in our English probably comes to mind first is that response of sheer terror. We see this in the response of the people of Egypt and in the land of Canaan during the conquest as they observed the miracles of God, the plagues of God, worked against any who opposed Israel and their God. We see it in those who observed in Acts 5 the death of Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Lord. Great terror came upon the people. Secondly, there is awe and wonder. We see this 
from David as he observes the greatness of God throughout the Psalms over and over again. You see that fear of the Lord in light of the greatness of God, his wonder. You see it in Psalm 8 where he says many things, but in verses 3 through 4, he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you have thought of him? Or the son of man that you even care for him? The awe and the wonder at the greatness of God. Thirdly, fear can stoke thankfulness. In Psalm 130, we see that thankfulness come about because of forgiveness. In Psalm 30, 130, verses 1 through 4, we read, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my prayers. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The thankfulness, in this case for the forgiveness of the Lord, creates fear. It's tied to the concept of fear of the Lord. Fourthly, the fear of the Lord creates a hatred of sin and wickedness. In Proverbs 8, verse 13, we read that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. In other words, it's to hate evil because God hates evil. It's to see with God's eyes in some small capacity. Fifthly, there is trust in God. The fear of the Lord creates trust. Isaiah 50, verse 10 who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Fearing God gives confidence for trusting and relying upon God. Sixthly, there is the worship of God. We see this in Revelation 14.7 and throughout the Psalms. But Revelation 14.7, one of the angels speaking said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. And finally, for this morning at least, we see that the fear of the Lord often produces obedience. In Job 1.8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, and as a result, turning away from evil. These different responses or elements of the fear of the Lord, they may work in concert with one another. There may be more than one present in any given context or situation. Ultimately, however, to fear the Lord is to rightly understand aspects of his holiness, his attributes, and his love, and then there's a variety of responsible responses that may result from this understanding. Ultimately, the fear of the Lord develops from the study of the Lord and understanding who He is and His holiness and His goodness. In Haggai, we see the response of the people to their disobedience and recognizing, in their case, what they begin to recognize about God is that God disciplines for sin. And so how do they respond? Well, they respond by fearing the Lord in worship. This worship would have certainly involved a confession of sin. How do I know that? How can we be certain that they confess their sin since we don't read it here? How do we know that the Lord was pleased with their response and that they sincerely turned to him? It's because of what we see in verse 13 where the Lord spoke through Haggai and told the people what? I am with you. You see, that intimacy and that comfort that they had been lacking for the past 16 to 17 years while they had lived in disobedience, while they, had, while they had let the fear of the surrounding nations terrorize them, petrify them into disobedience. 
that it resulted in stealing from God, that it created a rift in their relationship. That could only be restored through repentance and confession of sin. David tells us this in Psalm 66 where he says, in verse 16, Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So what is the solution? But certainly the Lord has heard. He has given ear heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away from my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me, because he has confessed his sin. When God said, I am with you, it was an acknowledgement of their confession of sin. And so God begins to reiterate his promises to them. This was no benign statement. It wasn't just a passing comforting statement. This statement, I am with you, is pregnant with meaning. So was assurance, the same assurance God gave to Israel after coming out of Egypt, that they were his people and he would bless them and protect them and fulfill his promises to them. It echoed the promise of the coming Messiah who would be called Emmanuel, according to Isaiah, meaning I am with you. It was assurance that God had indeed forgiven their sins and would be faithful to fulfill his promises and do everything for them he had promised beforehand that he would do. Summed up in those words are all the promises of the covenant and God's loyal love and faithfulness to his people. But it all stemmed from rightly fearing God. Begins first with listening, hearing, internalizing, and recognizing God, his standard, his holiness, who he is, and then responding rightly, which is responding in the fear of the Lord, which as we've said, can take many different, many different forms and fashions. So we've observed that necessity of listening and now a fear in God as we progress towards obedience. But there's a third ingredient this morning in learning to rightly obey. And that's in the doing. And you may think that's all that comprises obedience. But we would be shortchanging ourselves. We would be, unfortunately, more often disobeying than obeying if we jumped right to the action. When we have listened and internalized God's word, when we have confessed and repented of sin and experienced the forgiveness of God, it's at that point that the natural progression toward obedience in our life becomes action. Not before, but after. It's the doing. We see this in verses 14 and 15 of Haggai 1, and it's not accidental that these are placed in this order. And in fact, we see in verse 15 that a short time has elapsed since Haggai first declared this message. Roughly three weeks has elapsed since the beginning of chapter 1 and the end of chapter 1. In that intervening time, the people have responded. Now, we don't have all the details of it. It's likely that there was a time of public confession and sacrifice as they turned to the Lord in recognition of their sin, as we've seen many other times in Israel's history. Whatever form it took, they've now repented. And we see that the result is that the Spirit of the Lord stirs their hearts once again toward obedience. This, by the way, is a wonderful example of what it means to walk by the Spirit, of that New Testament concept of walking by the Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, we are instructed to do just that. In Ephesians, Ephesians 5, we're likewise told to be filled with the Spirit. But how does one do that? How do you walk by the Spirit? How do you be filled with the Spirit? It's a very abstract concept. So how do you make it concrete? How do you do that? 
Well, this example from Haggai helps us fill in those blanks. Put simply, the way we walk by the Spirit is by doing the things we've been talking about this morning, by listening, hearing, studying the Word of God, and then fearing the Lord through confession of sin and worship, and then beginning to do those things clearly indicated in His Word. When we go through this process, when we follow these ingredients and these steps, we will often experience that comforting and energizing of the Spirit. There becomes a motivation for growing toward obedience as we actively confess sin and seek to know the Lord and do what He says. Those emotions and those feelings, that stirring of the Spirit, often accompany the beginning of that process of obedience, of turning to the Lord, studying, asking Him, what is it that I need to know about you? Where have I sinned? Where do I need to grow in sanctification? And then beginning to take those steps in that direction. Notice here, again, that the doing follows listening and fearing. That is the proper order. To try and manufacture obedience without first mourning over sin, confessing and repenting of sin, and without listening to the Lord will result in frustration and ultimately in disobedience. You'll be trying to please the Lord in your own strength. But the Lord does not delight in actions that are void of and not rooted and grounded in the knowledge of Him or the fear and love of Him. He says that explicitly. He says it in Hosea 6.6. 6. He says, for I delight in loyal love, steadfast love, rather than sacrifice. In other words, don't go do stuff if you don't love me, if you haven't cultivated that loyal love. And in the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. Again, I don't care about your outward obedience if you are inwardly faithful to me. If you haven't first sought to know me, and in your knowing me, to love me and to fear me to turn from your sin. If that hasn't first taken place, I don't care what you do on the outside because it's anything but obedience. If anything, it often hardens our heart further. This, by the way, is why it's impossible for an unbeliever to please God, someone who doesn't love the Lord. No matter how many good things they do, if they do not fear and love God, if they do not have the knowledge of God, if they do not seek to grow in that knowledge of God, that leads to greater worship, then God is not interested in their deeds or works. In fact, Isaiah describes it. He says that that righteousness, those att that attempt at righteousness is filthy rags. That's how God views it. Doesn't matter how philanthropic you are, doesn't matter how much you give of your time. If you do not love the Lord, if you do not have the knowledge of God, it is worthless before him in the day of judgment. And that day will come. There will come a time where all deeds are exposed and we stand before the Lord. That's why we continually remind ourselves. That's what we proclaim this morning through communion of Christ's death, his forgiveness of sin. Because we desire to obey him. We desire to do those works of righteousness that Receive the admonition, well done, good and faithful servants. But if you've never experienced the transforming, saving grace of God, then I, I call on you this morning to repent. Recognize your sin. You've heard it this morning. You, 
You know you're a sinner. You know you're not right with God. Turn from that sin. Call out to him so that you can begin doing those works of righteousness in true obedience. The reminder to cultivate a poverty of spirit through the study of God's word and to mourn over sin and confess it in repentance are so crucial to the believer's life, to the life of a faithful disciple. There's really no other way to walk by the Spirit. That's why Zechariah says in Zechariah 4.6, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. We cannot manufacture obedience that pleases God simply by trying. We have to follow the God-given pattern for cultivating love and fear so that our actions will please Him in Spirit-led obedience. And the pattern we observe here in Haggai is by listening and growing in our knowledge of God, by cultivating a fear of God, and ultimately by doing what God says in that fear of God. One of the reasons this pattern we've discussed this morning is so important is that our obedience is never going to be able to surpass our knowledge. Which means we must continually be students of God's word so that we can grow in our obedience. Your obedience will be stifled by the amount that you know God, by how well you study God. When James exhorts the believers to be doers of the word, not merely hearers, he says that the person who is blessed, that that person is blessed in all they do is the one who is looking intently upon the perfect law and continues to do it. In other words, it requires, in order to be blessed in all you do, in order to be a doer of God's word, it involves you looking intently at the law of God. That is to study it, to meditate upon it, to know it. If you try to skip straight to obedience, you are likely to fail or be extremely limited in your obedience, like trying to play a game without first studying and reading the rules. It's a mess. There's a warning, though, as you enter into study, and it's worth just making note of this. We need to be wary as we engage in study, as we engage in knowing the Lord, not to become accustomed to sitting and studying only. One of the dangers on the other side, in fact, we were reminded of that this morning from the church of Ephesus, is losing that first love, where in our zeal for knowledge, which is a good thing, becoming complacent in the doing. That's why James tries to balance that with being not only hearers and students and diligently studying the word, but doers as well. Simply listening and growing in knowledge puffs one up, and God takes no delight in such a person. This morning, as we close out this example that we have of what true God-honoring obedience looks like, I want to read a passage from Isaiah 55, and you can go and turn there. It contains many of the themes we've discussed this morning, and it ends with the reminder that God's word always accomplishes its purpose. Beginning in verse 6 of Isaiah 55, we read, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And I love this promise. And he will have compassion on him. And to our God. For he will abundantly pardon 
There's no limit to God's forgiveness. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Knowing that there is such power behind God's word should encourage us and exhort us to study it, to know God, that we might rightly obey him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning of what God-honoring obedience looks like. Father, help us to faithfully do the hard work of being diligent listeners, hearers of your word, learning to actively engage, to constantly be asking how do our lives need to be brought into conformity with your word. Help us to be faithful to do that. And as you reveal things in our lives, as you reveal sin, as you reveal areas of growth, May we be quick to confess that sin. May we be diligent to begin applying and moving in that right direction. We thank you for the promise we have in the Old, Old Testament example and the New Testament promise of your spirit who works within us. Thank you for the encouragement, and the motivation, the stirring that comes as we begin to walk in obedience. Father, we thank you for the promise you will never leave us nor forsake us. Father, help us to grow in our love for you and our intimacy with you as we desire to make your name known, to proclaim your name, to proclaim your glory to this world. In your name, amen.